And I've done that, you know, with retired missionaries who taught me in school. And they were godly men and they were committed men. And I heard what they said and I was committed to them. I was not committed to the truth. Hello and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, to you be all the praise and all the honor and all the glory, because there's only one God. She repeated that just in Isaiah over and over again. There is no other. I am God. I am Yehovah. I am the I am that I am. And there is no other. You are the one who is eternal. One being in all the universe. Everywhere present at the same time. One omnipresent God. Who is eternal. Has always been and always will be. Every other created being finds its beginning, its essence, its being in you. You find you are eternal. We can't comprehend the concept. It's a concept to us. It's all it is. It's all it'll ever be. We we just will never be God in in that I can't foresee because I'm finite what we will and we won't know. I just know that we'll never be God because there's only and always one God. I can't conceive that we would ever be everywhere present. I know we will be placed in you and there's an identification in Christ that cleanses away all past sins, that unites us with the living God in purity and holiness and And all of that will be a reality. And still in at the same time, as theologians refer to it, there are communicable and non-communicable attributes. And makes the only thing that really makes sense because we are not, nor will we ever be God. It's heresy to think that we would be equal with God. We do not, we are not omnipotent. We are not omniscient, and we will never be eternal in the sense of always having been. You are the one who created time, and you live outside of time. We just want to stop and give you the glory and understand that we don't understand everything, and actually we comprehend nothing. We get to the end of these concepts in our mind we just begin and it's over we can't conceive of these things and so we give you praise and honor and glory for who you are i ask as we as we look at this lesson lord that we understand a little bit better what it means to reason as isaiah inspired by the Holy Spirit, spoke for God and said, come, let us reason together. I ask, Lord, that we would consider this for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. In this lesson, I want us to consider the idea of what it means to reason. You know, we look at interpretation and we think everyone has the right to their interpretation. And two people reason their way to what they believe. And the, the person of the Bible understands, considers, and decides that his reasoning is true. It's accurate. And for this reason... He continues to pursue that form of reason. We also understand that the truth is not that broad. 
two people can't hold two contrary positions and both be correct. We understand the truth to be narrow. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. No matter how you reason it, if you're going to reason it biblically, you have to reason that nowhere in the Bible can that be contradicted because God never contradicts himself. And so you have to come to the place where you would believe that when Jesus says he's the way, there is no other way. When he says, no one comes to the Father but through me, here's the reasoning process. Jesus is saying he's the way. Every Christian person who is, should I say it, anything more than an idiot has to reason that Jesus is the way, the only way, and that there can be no other way because of the way he said it. I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. That makes it very, very narrow. Now, if another person comes along, calls himself a Christian, and they say, no, of course there's other ways, and they have a completely different reasoning process. A person with a reasoning mind says you can't have both positions be correct. One has to be correct and one has to be incorrect. By the process of good reasoning. What it means to reason. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. There's a reasoning there. There's cause and effect. There's the red-crimson color, which is the color of blood, which turns black sins that God deplores into the pure white uh, element that as if it had never a person had never sinned. They're cleansed away through the sufferings and sacrifice of Christ. This is all reasoning. We're reasoning that because of the sacrifice of Christ, sin which caused Christ's death, made those sins pure and white as if they had never existed. Therefore, um, a person is made righteous by the sufferings and sacrifice of Christ. And all of that is cause and effect. Christ's sufferings equals our salvation. His sacrifice results in our purity and forgiveness of sin. Now, if you want to come up with some other reasoning that undoes that, <laughs> a person can do whatever they want, the church can do whatever they want, and say whatever they want. But only that which is reasonable matters. So I'm going to use as an example, and this has to do more with division in the church. I'm speaking once again to this subject which is is so persistent throughout the church ages. And men, uh, I mentioned this not too long ago, <clears throat> even as a George Whitfield, who just, he wasn't a, a pastor in, in, in the technical sense as we think of pastors who minister to one little congregation, or one big congregation, one congregation of people, and seek for their maturity and go through theology. You know, he was an evangelist. And he went through all the world of his time preaching and preaching and preaching and seeing multitudes come to Christ like the Billy Grahams and so forth. And that was his primary focus in ministry. And yet he said that division in the church so, so hurt him. So many men have, have said that. Why? Because it's not the will of God. And, and, and it, it, it touches many of us. But many in our day just take it like, and I don't want to speak for people, but when make statements like, you know, it's almost like that's just the way it is, you can't change it. Therefore, what? Don't grieve over it. I think grief is the beginning of a prayer life that m might begin to change things. So here's, uh, we're going to we'll look a little bit at this whole idea 
Is there or isn't there an Israel? Will there be a restoration of Israel? Are all the prophets, major and minor, that repeatedly throughout their writings teach about the restoration of Israel, does that mean something else or does it mean the restoration of Israel? Uh, do, should we just maintain division over the idea of Israel or should we understand the reasoning process? Here, here's the reasoning process from on re- replacement theology. And replacement theology is, is basically, there's a different definition by someone who spoke from, uh, wrote from uh, Liberty University. <clears throat> Preterist and covenant theologian Kenneth Gentry defines replacement theology to which he holds as follows, quote, we believe, so this is a man who's not a th- replacement theology, quoting one who is, that's, forget about who they are for a second, just what they're talking about. We believe that the international church has superseded for all times national Israel as the institution for the administration of divine blessing to the world. The dispensationalists believe that the church is the current instrument through which God is working in this age. But God has a future time in which he will restore national Israel, end quote as the institution for the administration of divine blessings to the world. Gentry adds to his initial statement the following embellishment. So he goes on from that statement, which dispensationists believe in the restoration of a national Israel. This is, this is what he goes on to say, this is, we believe, that in the unfolding of the plan of God in history, the Christian church is the very fruition of the redemptive purpose of God. As such, the multiracial, racial, international church of Jesus Christ supersedes racial, national Israel as the focus of the kingdom of God. Indeed, supersedes racial, national Israel as the focus of the kingdom of God. Indeed, we believe that the church becomes the Israel of God. And then there's references for all of this. The, the, so he's, he's saying that we believe that the church becomes the Israel of God. Now, what I want to do is ask my listeners at this point. See, this is reasoning. Both are reasoning. They're reasoning. And I'll go into greater detail at what the reasoning is in just a second. But I want to ask my listeners, because it's a reasoning is it, is it an, an acceptable reasoning? There's a reasoning which gets you where you want to go. But is it, is it good reasoning? Now, evolution gets people where they want to go. But is it reasonable? You know, Einstein, when he says there has to be a God, even though he didn't believe in the Judeo-Christian God because of evil, you know, there has to be a God. Why? Because nothing creates nothing. His reasoning was flawless because it makes sense. It's reasonable. You don't go from nothing to something. There's nothing, no evidence anywhere where you see something going from nothing to something. It just, it doesn't exist. You don't, you don't, you just don't get something from nothing. That's reason. So here we have the preterist view, the supersessionism, replacement theology, all these names, all these definitions of all these little bitty process of reasoning. And what I'm asking is, if, a, if something is not, does it f- f- pass the test of reasonable reasoning, then why don't we start to pray that people would look and take a long, hard look at their process, if it fails the test, stop thinking that way. I say that, and I say it a little bit harshly, because anyone who's a Christian and who's always seeking after the truth has to be changing their mind in so many things because we're not born with perfection of thought. So to pursue the truth is to be always changing your mind 
as you go through life. Unless you're born perfect, and then you never have to change your mind. I don't, I don't understand that. Maybe you could be taught a certain amount of things that are correct, but who, who gets taught everything correct from the beginning? That boggles my mind. Is It's not my experience. I've had to say I'm wrong. I've been wrong so many times. So we go back quickly to this, and there's all these references. As the church becomes the Israel of God, the seed of Abraham, the circumcision, the temple of God, and so forth. This is going back to this quote. We believe that Jew and Gentile are eternally merged into a new man in the church of Jesus Christ. So Thomas Ice from Liberty continues, it appears that supersessionists believe that Israel is a has-been and has no future in the plan of God. The church inherits all the blessings while Israel is meant to endure only curses. So whether you believe that or not, here's the question. Does a person by reason, have the right in face of biblical promises of Israel, do we have, does a person have the right to change what Israel is, the definition of Israel? And I say that because anyone who understood before the New Testament, they would understand Israel to be of the seed of Abraham. Even in the New Testament, a multitude of of references can be given. Now, does the reasoning process give person permission to change the definition of Israel? And you know, this is like not just present day. This this rose a long time ago, and I just want to state that. And this is a, a quote. Replacement theology has been the consensus of the church from the middle of the second century AD to the present day, with few exceptions. So replacement theology has been around a long time. Even though the anti-Nicene fathers were predominantly premillennial in their understanding of future things, they laid a groundwork that would lead to the rise and development of replacement theology. Premillennialist Justin Martyr was the first to view, quote, the Christian church as the true spiritual Israel. Around A.D. 160, Justin views laid the groundwork for the growing belief that the church had superseded or replaced Israel. Misunderstanding of it colors the church's attitude to Judaism and contributes to anti-Semitism, notes Peter Richardson. He adds, quote, in spite of the many attributes, characteristics, prerogatives of the latter, which are applied to the former, the church is not called Israel in the New Testament. The continuity between Israel and the church is partial, and the discontinuity between Israel, B.C., and its continuation, A.D., is partial. Further, by the time of Arrhenius, it becomes entrenched, in Christian theology that, quote, the bulk of Israel's scriptures are indecisive for the formation of Christian doctrine, end quote. Solane continues, quote, in addition to narrowing the thematic focus of the Hebrew scriptures to the problem of sin and redemption, the standard model also foreshortens the Hebrew scriptures into a temporal sense. As perceived through the lens of the standard model, the Hebrew scriptures do not relate a story that extends indefinitely into the future. Kaiser paints the following development picture in the early church. And I'm going to conclude this whole line of reasoning with this quote. Replacement theology is not a new arrival in the theological arena, for it probably has its origins in an early political uh, ecclesiastical alliance forged between Eusebius, Pamphilus, and the Emperor Constantine. 
Constantine, regarding himself as God's representative in his role as emperor, gathered all the bishops together on the day of his tricentennial 30th anniversary of his reign, uh, an event, incidentally, which he saw as the foreshadowing of the eschatological messianic banquet. The results of that meeting in Eusebius' mind made it unnecessary to distinguish any longer between the church and the empire, for they appeared to merge into one fulfilled kingdom of God on earth in the present time. Such a maneuver, of course, nicely evacuated the role and the significance of the Jewish people in any kingdom considerations. Here began the long trail of replacement theology. Now this Kaiser is talking about as a good thing. He's talking about it as this is the beginning of this understanding. Now, let's stop for a second and understanding, understand what understanding is. <laughs> where truth, where the reality of, of thought originates. Does it originate with the church or does it originate with God? Are the scriptures eternal in their concept? Are they true in every point because they find their origin in the mind of God? Or, as some have said, and I was taught actually in school, and what I would consider a good school, godly people who meant well, that revelation is something which matures over time. Centuries go by. And God lets out more information and more information and you get a bigger picture. And in the minds of many, the picture changes. Wait, stop. And the same people will say that the truth is the truth and it never changes. But somehow, as revelation is further given and more revelation is given, that somehow it changes something. You know, a mystery is something which is revealed in the Old Testament if you really study it out. And then it becomes more clear in the New Testament. But it's unchanged in what's being said. What's changing is the thinking in the mind of a person. Now, see, you can take that same idea, what I just said, and say, well, as it's changing in the mind of a person, even though it doesn't change in the mind of God, but it is changing in the mind of people. And I would say that's false faulty reasoning. Because you add a piece that makes it more clear, you're not changing the piece that came before. So in the Old Testament, when you, we understand that God is talking to Abraham, and he says, you look at the, sky, the, the stars in the heavens. You know, they're like the sand on the seashore. So your descendants will be. What, what's a descendant? In the context, the descendant is a person who's of the seed of Abraham. What's that mean? It means biologically. Biological seed. Now we understand in the New Testament that a, a Jew is not just a Jew who's one biologically, but one who's one spiritually by faith. So Israel, uh, Abraham rather, was a true Jew. Why? Because he was the first Jew. He, he was the first uh, who would be in that consideration of the nation of Israel, even though Israel was one of his descendants. But let's just call him the first Israelite uh, for, the, for this fact of reasoning. He's the first Jew, he's the first Israelite, and his descendants biologically are his descendants, and a complete Jew is one who's of the descendant of, of Abraham, who also has the faith. Of Abraham. Now that's the further connection in the New Testament. It doesn't change the fact that a Jew is a descendant of Abraham. A person who's of the faith of Abraham is Jewish in the sense of spiritually. He's a true Jew even if he's a Gentile. But it does not change what is a Gentile and what is a Jew. There are biological Jews. Those are Jews only in a biological sense. And then there are Jews, spiritually, who have only the faith of Abraham. You see, nothing's changed 
And yet it's a fulfilling of the idea that there is such a thing as a true, as a spiritual Jew. So the church of Gentiles could be considered spiritual Jews, even though they're Gentiles and they're not Jews, because they've not been born to the seed of Abraham. I mean, that is consistency with additional information. But when you turn a, a Gentile into a Jew, biologically, you've now left reason. You're not, you're not being reasoning. You're not reasoning anymore. At the end of the, the movie, um, what was the name of the movie? God's Not Dead. You know, he's, there's that argument that takes place. And he gets angry at the professor because he says, you left reason long time ago. This isn't reason anymore. This is just your hatred for God. I'm, you know, changing the words a little bit, paraphrasing here. But, you know, you, he, and he makes him say he hates God. He, but he, had, he wasn't being reasonable in the class. Here's this, this brilliant philosopher, but his feelings, his emotions get, took him away to the point where he wasn't reasoning correctly. In his own feelings, he was reasoning, but it wasn't good reasoning, which makes it bad reasoning and incorrect reasoning. It's untrue. So you have the true reasoning, which is truth, and then you have faulty re reasoning, which is usually built on some kind of feelings. Maybe it's giving loyalty to the people of the past, the church of the past, the the fathers of the church. Maybe it's given that to the to to those during the Reformation. And I've done that, you know, with retired missionaries who taught me in school. And they were godly men, and they were committed men. And I heard what they said, and I was committed to them. I was not committed to the truth. I was not committed to godly reasoning. So in completion, as we head towards the end of what I'm saying here, I want to just spend a little bit of time in the scriptures considering some verses from the book of Romans and uh, understand what reasoning is concerning Israel. I've gone through this before in times past, but I want to emphasize and focus on chapter 11 of Romans. Here's, here's, here's Paul's reasoning. Now, He's a Jew, and he started in chapter 9 by saying, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh." Now let's 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 be reasonable for a second. When Paul is referring to his kinsmen according to the flesh, could he be speaking about true Jews? Uh, could he be speaking about the church as the new Israel? Is the new Israel men of flesh, or is Israel? Gentile Jews, that is, the faith of, his, of Abraham, but, of course, biologically not connected to Abraham because they're Gentiles. They're Japanese, or they're English, or they're you know, Chinese, or they're uh, an African in one country or another. All these different nationalities, all these different quote-unquote races, there's only two races, Adam and, and Christ, but uh, all these families within the human race, all these different nationalities, but not Jewish, who, who in a reasonable way is he referring to when he says, my kinsmen according to the flesh? In chapter 11, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. W what's he talking about here? here let's, let's be reasonable. 
Is he talking about a spiritual Jew, or is he talking about a Jew according to the flesh, as in Romans 9? Is there consistency here? Good reason and bad reason. Bad reason changes what a Jew is, as replacement theology obviously does. Good reason never changes. It doesn't twist things to mean something other than what was originally intended. God is not confused. He doesn't say one thing in one place and then changes its definition in another. That is to contradict self. God never contradicts self. The church does. Popes did and do. People do, even within Protestantism. People are always contradicting. That's why there's division in the church. But godly, heavenly truth never has contradiction attached to it. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's a statement by Paul. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. To know ahead of time is to place one's love upon someone ahead of time. That's the definition, and I'll tell you why. You know, Adam knew Eve, and they brought forth a child. You know, that was Abel, and or Cain, or children coming forth out of the love between a man and a wife. Adam knew his wife. Joseph knew Mary. Knew in an intimate way that brings forth life. Love, and there should be a love within marriage. And out of that love, there's intimacy. And out of that intimacy, life is brought forth. And that's what it means to know in a loving way and bring forth new life. Now, God foreknew everyone who's ever be born before the foundation of the work was ever laid. He knew every name It's all written in a book. All the chosen start to get into the sovereignty of God. All of this is connected, but there's this foreknowledge of God which is placing love upon someone. And then this is what Paul says, and he goes on and says, Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. So Elijah is speaking out against Israel in a truthful way because Israel is rejecting the truth of God. And then in verse 4, but, big but here, big, big, but what is the divine response to him? Quote, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, end quote. So of however many hundreds of thousands or millions of people were in Israel at that time, we have 7,000 people chosen by God, foreknown by God, upon whom he placed his love. And these 7,000 are not unfaithful to Baal. Why? As he will end chapter 11, say all things are of and through and unto him. This is God working in the hearts of people to transform them into something other than the unfaithful Israelites. These being true Israelites, not only of the lineage of Abraham, but also of the faith of Abraham. This is consistency It's good reasoning, and it's biblical. At this point, it gets a little hard. I can continue to go down this and go through all of Romans 9, 10, 11, scriptures and Ephesians and throughout, which does not change Israel into the church. That's unbiblical, untrue reasoning. That just doesn't do it. Now, I can't reason with a brilliant scholar like Kaiser, who I appreciate so much because I've read his works on understanding Greek and 
understanding how to understand the Bible and, and just so many good things. I mean, you know, nobody's perfect. <clears throat> but what we're talking about here is we're talking about whether or not the church has the right to be divided. Can you just do what you want? Can you just the church just come along or you want to go back to justice or you want to go back to whoever, Constantine, you want to go back and say, look, this is where the thinking started to change. This is where people started to understand things. And they were, they were by their own efforts, changing the meaning of the Bible. Constantine was probably not a believer. Constantine was an emperor who decided he was a Jew because he had a vision that turned unbelievers into Christians by the, the wave of his hand as a man. Now he comes up with this idea of the empire being Christian and it just fit the whole narrative that says, look, this is it. Israel are Gentiles. <laughs> it's insanity. No one has the right, and I, I don't mean to call people insane. It's just bad reasoning. We understand reason to be cause and effect. You know, the, all the ground outside is wet. It rained. It's reasonable. How else did it get wet? There's dark clouds in the sky. You know, it's still drizzling, okay? Cause and effect. You see it. You understand it, and it works. Somehow, when it comes to Christian theology, people can walk away from that as if it doesn't even exist anymore. And you can just make up as you go. And you have the right to do that because everyone has the right to an interpretation. No! No one has the right to interpretation. Just one. And that's God. He wrote the Bible. And he did so with perfect consistency. Without ever contradicting himself. <clears throat> and so the, the, the whole point here that I'm making is what is reasonable and what is not. Who has the right to a an interpretation, and who doesn't? Who has the right? So when the word baptism is changed, which actually means immerse, and because the king wants a, a Bible done in his name in English, and he believed in uh, sprinkling, and the uh, translators thought they might lose their head if they put uh, baptiz baptism in there and they put immerse in there from the, from the Greek. And he reads, what's this immerse? Take their heads off. So instead of coming up with immerse, baptism, he, he puts in baptize, he puts in, they put in, they change it, they transliterate it uh, from baptizo and they just put baptism and it's a new word that never existed before so that he can have his sprinkling. You know, you have to change the words in the Bible. So we ask our Christian brothers, you know, do you really want to hold to sprinkling? And they got all their reasons. They got the reasons. Okay, so you got, a, you got reasoning in, in your mind. You have reason. But, but to, to baptize is to immerse. As a body goes into the earth and is dead, and then it comes out of the earth and it's alive as the resurrection, so is the picture of uh, salvation in Christ. Salvation in Christ pictured in baptism is death in Christ. I'm dead to the world. The world is dead to me now. I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Old things are becoming new. I'm new. I've been raised from the dead. You can't picture that in sprinkling, but you can picture that in immersion. Someone has to be right. The question is, who's reasonable? And so when John MacArthur, you know, went and debated R.C. Sproul, and right from the square one, R.C. says, well, you know, if we're going to go scripture, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm done. And uh, that's right, and he was done, but he didn't stop arguing. And I have nothing against R.C.'s in heaven now, and he's glorified, and, 
you know, he's, he understands he was wrong. <laughs> Why? Because his reasoning was faulty. His reasoning was faulty because it's immersion. You know, why did the John the Baptist have to go where there was more water? You don't need a lot of water to sprinkle. A few drops will do it. But when you're putting people down into the water and bringing them back up and there's hundreds and hundreds of people you got to baptize, you need some serious water. So you had to go down to where the Jordan, the Jordan, I mean, just let's be reasonable. No, no, people aren't going to be reasonable. They're not going to change their mind. They're going to believe what they want to believe because their feelings are invested in it and their reasoning mind is not. They've left reason. And I'm pushing this a little hard and I don't want to be hard on people and, 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 and there's no way of saying these things without being hard because we're talking about basic understanding. We're not talking about brilliance here. We're just talking about something that everyone has or they don't have and actually everyone has been given from birth because we use it all our lives in many, many ways. Ways that we would consider don't even matter. You know, you need a new pair of socks. You, you reason that you got holes and you, and you have money, you go out and you buy a new pair of socks. I mean, it's just a simple, stupid little illustration of how the mind works. Except when you get to f feelings are involved. This is where men, men and women have huge problems because men are based on respect and women are based on love, love and respect. And they miss each other sometimes. And a, a woman may be thinking through her feelings or him, her emotions. And sometimes reasoning gets twisted. Men can think through this desire to, to get respect. And it can twist their reasoning process. It happens both ways. And, 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 and it can cause great conflict in a marriage. Not because people aren't given the ability to reason, both men and women are given reason. It's twisted differently for both because of the way God implanted it in people. And now you have this argument going on. Two people are very capable of reasoning, but neither one sometimes backs away and say, how am I thinking through this? You know, am I being selfish? Is my reasoning actually selfish? Is it, is it based on some alliance that is really not godly? Am I putting God first? Or am I putting me first and now I have a conflict with my wife? Now I have a conflict with my husband because my emotions are twisting, twisting my reasoning process. All I would ask is any godly man would ask, is that we be not divided, but we be united. And the only way to get there is to call sin, sin. Whatever it is that causes us to twist the truth, which is not a good thing. I mean, in every case where a theology is being twisted, you're twisting, we twist God's word. We twist God's word. That's, that's not good. It's not acceptable. It's not perfect. It's not holy. It's sinful. It's always sinful to twist God's word. If we look at it that way, maybe we can begin to back off and say, you know, this really needs to change. We really need to understand within our soul that twisting the word of God is a sin and it needs to stop. I want to pray, spend a couple of minutes in prayer. Pray with me, you're listening to this. And pray that the church would humble itself and repent. We're always called to repentance. My people who are called by my name, that's Israel, you know will confess their sins, repent of their evil ways. You know, what's going to happen? You know, God's going to pour out blessing. And the church needs blessing right now. In the East, it's already under persecution. People have been dying. More people have died in the 20th century than in all the centuries before. It hasn't stopped in the 21st. It's not even slowing down. More and more persecution. It's going to come to the West. People are going to die. And the question is, are we prepared for it? 
Are we living a life of repentance? Or are we just so stiff-necked and hard-hearted that we are just persistent in unbelief and in corrupting the truth? Dear Heavenly Father, Your Word is good and it's holy and it's true and it's perfect, it's accurate, it's consistent. Your Word is the representation of you. In essence, you are not just a mind that thinks you're powerful. You can create from nothing. Your judgments are the last say in everything. And your word represents that. Your, Your word represents truth to perfection, something that should never be tampered with. Lord, we all do it. We can all sit here, stand here, kneel right now and say, Lord, I I confess my sins. In the past, I've thought things that were not true. I can turn that just into something like, I didn't mean to do it. Or I can say, I shouldn't come to any conclusion on anything until I have gone through the proper reasoning process. I have done the proper study. I've considered everything. And until I know in my heart that this is what God means by what God has said, that I am not twisting the truth, I should say, you know, I don't know. And I should let that I know convict me in my heart that I haven't finished yet and I need to finish. I need to come to a reasoned, rational, spirit-filled, conclusion as to what is the truth and then when I'm satisfied that it's the truth rest my assurances that in every text it'll mean the same thing and if there's anything that hints in any way of inconsistency then I need to stop and say with all the work I've put in I was wrong still Lord the work it has to be hard work with a persistence that I'm always right. Why? Not to be right and build pride, but to not be wrong and adulterate the word of God, cause people to stumble, divide the church. Lord, we have to have a passion, not for knowing the truth for selfish reasons, but for knowing the truth because the truth is the thing that saves people. The truth is what God uses in the salvation of the lost, in the maturity of the, of the church body, of the Christian individual. Lord, I pray that revival would come to the church. Revival that would bring life into dead things. Revival that would awaken the conscience of all of us, when we're thinking something that's not true and unreasonable. Lord, may we get a new understanding of what's reasonable. A new understanding of reason. So that when we hear the words, come, come, we we have to come to God. And let us reason together. When we're in God's presence, reason means something. It means that we get it right. It means we walk in the truth. It means that we care about the truth because it may take saying, I'm wrong. I got this wrong. I'm adulterating the word of God. I have to stop doing this. Instead of persisting, in something that's just not reasonable. And it offends God. Lord, you're not a, a machine. You're not above being hurt. When you created Ben, you created the ability, you created the scenario of being hurt. We know you can be hurt. You hung on a cross. We know that you, you, you bore an eternity of pain and suffering. For all those who you saved. We know in the flesh physically. 
in the, in the spirit, spiritually, you are torn apart, torn to shreds. And every time a sinful person come of age of maturity and we choose to do wrong and we have an evil conscience and we continue to do wrong and we just, we just disobey you, we rebel against you and we hate you, That hurts. It hurts the living God who called people to be a bride in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And the bride had to be divorced. And divorce hurts people deeply. And even psychologists tell us more deeply than anything, even death. Because death, as horrible as it is, it brings life to an end. And as time passes, it's, it's done. But divorce can go on for decades. And it's hurtful. And it sears people in their heart because they've been rejected. And no one No one has felt rejection like God because you've been rejected by every last person who was ever born. And if it weren't for your grace, there would be no reunion, no salvation, no bride of Christ. Your grace changed everything in spite of the hurt. So, Lord, we, we pray that you would just make us mindful of these things, bring this awareness of how we, we hurt the living God, and make us not divided, but unite us as a body around the world in, in individual churches between two brothers and bring a unity of spirit. You will do it one day. In the millennial kingdom, there'll be one church, there'll be one truth, and no one can deviate from it. Start it now, Lord. We ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.